Last week, we started a new series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. In that message last week, we looked at the context of Corinth, the centrality of Christ, and the commission of the church. If you didn't see that message, I encourage you to go back and look because as we work our way through the first and second Corinthians over these next few weeks, it'll be important for you to know some of the details that we talked about last week. Well, after the introduction, Paul gets right into the topic, and that's what we're going to do this morning. After a very encouraging welcome, he then kind of reprimands them a little bit by getting to the point of the letter. What's the point? There were disagreements and division. There was infighting, lots of disputes and debate in the church. You ever feel like that's kind of the world in which we live too? For example, how about our country? Have you noticed any divisions, any schisms, any factions? It seems like regardless of the topic, we have people on both sides or a number of different sides. How about in our workplaces? Surely they would be better than our country. We have mission statements, we have core values, and we have the leverage of a paycheck to kind of keep everybody getting along. What's the number one problem in our workplaces? People, infighting, silos, incompetent workers, bad bosses. People seem to be the problem. Oh yeah, but that's not true in our families, right? Of course that's true. There are divisions and disagreements, disputes and debates in our families. We're not together. We're often separated and the lines of division are drawn. Well, how about the church then? Is the church united? Christ is the head, everybody walking in step? That's not true either. In fact, there are more debates and more divisions in a church than maybe anywhere else. Paul speaks to a problem that we all experience and that we all know really well. Let's read the verses where he teases this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 10, and I'll read through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul speaks to the problem of division and disunity, factions and debate. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to move toward a resolution, but we need to start, first of all, with Paul's appeal. Notice he says, I appeal to you. In fact, the purpose of the first letter was the appeal to stop the division. Well, that raises a question. 
how did Paul find out about the disagreement? How did Paul find out about the arguing and all of the factions? The Corinthian church had written to Paul and asked him to weigh in on a number of issues. None of the issues concerned disagreement and dispute, however. How did he learn about the problem of dispute? Well, imagine you're reading the letter from Paul, and most people didn't read back then, and so the letter would have been read. And imagine that you hear Paul say, I heard from members of Chloe's household that there are disputes and arguments and factions among you. Who was Chloe? Well, first of all, Chloe was a woman. Chloe was very wealthy. What Chloe was crazy about Jesus. Chloe took her properties, her estate, and put it at the disposal of the church. Chloe was a crazy rich Asian. And it's a good thing that members of her household communicated to Paul what the problem was. But could you imagine sitting there as the letter's being read, and Paul says, some members of Chloe's household ratted you all out. And my guess is some of the people are sitting there thinking, can you believe it? Some members from Chloe's household went to Paul, told him that there's disputes and arguments, disunity here, and for all time, we're going to be listed on the bad list because there are arguments and disputes here. Maybe the members of Chloe's household went to those that were in dispute, Maybe they should have, but didn't. But the one thing for sure, it's now in the open and Paul's appealing to them to have unity where there was disunity, to come together again. He appeals to them to please don't separate over issues that should not divide you. Well, what were the obstacles? What were the, some of the things that were causing them to uh, break unity over? Well, there were some uh, surface obstacles. In fact, in the verses we read, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. You know, it makes perfect sense that each of those individuals would have a little bit of a following. For example, Paul founded the church so it would have been very natural for lots of people to say, I remember Paul came and presented the gospel to us. He planted this church. I follow Paul. Soon after that, Apollo showed up. And we know from other places in the New Testament that Apollos was eloquent. He was educated and a great communicator. And lots of people probably said, well, I listened to Paul talk and I'm bored to tears. Apollo speaks and I'm not tempted to fall asleep at all. I'm riveted by what he says. In fact, I know some of you may think, I can't believe you, you would call Paul a boring speaker. Well, there's actually an account of that in the book of Acts. You can read it later. In Acts chapter 20, Paul uh, appears in a gathering. He's going to speak to the church. And uh, the text says, they gathered in the upper room and Paul talked on and on and on. There was a young man listening. His name was Eutychus. And he uh, was sitting on a windowsill in the upper floor as Paul went on and on and on, and he fell asleep. I can tell you as a speaker, it's not very encouraging when you look around and see some people falling asleep. But in this case, Eutychus falls out the window, down to the ground, and he dies. That was a killer sermon, I'm guessing. Well, Paul went down. 
He raised Eutychus again back to life. That's always good to be able to play that card. But they go back upstairs, and we read in Acts 20, Paul talked again throughout the rest of the night. So maybe Paul was not a riveting, eloquent speaker. He wrote really good letters. Apollos was a great speaker, so you can understand why he would have a following. How about Peter, Cephas? Well, maybe some people said, yeah, Paul's great. Apollos is great. But Peter was one of the original apostles. I'm going to follow one of the disciples that followed Jesus around, left his business and gave himself to following Jesus. He saw the miracles. He heard the sermons. I follow Peter. And some others said, I follow Christ. Now, on the surface, there are lots of factions. The people are separating into different groups based on the teachers they're following. So you have the Paul group, you got the Apollos group, the Peter group, and then, of course, the religious-sounding Jesus group. But that's just the surface issue. They're finding their identity by attaching themselves to a leader that they respect and they lift up on a pedestal. We know what that's like a little bit. We follow the Eagles. We follow the Cowboys. Maybe not. We follow sports teams. We follow artists. We follow singers. We follow politicians. We, we belong to this party. We belong to that group. And somehow we think our identity is bolstered by the identification or the attachments that we make. But that's just the surface issue. The real issue that Paul gets to, not just here but in the rest of the letter, is that underneath the horizontal factions, you have a vertical fracture. The folks are disconnected. There's a fracture in their relationship with God through Christ, and that's allowing them or propelling them to live in a disharmonious relationship with other people. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What Paul's saying is, Jesus needs to be the center, and if there is no fracture in that vertical relationship, then the factions in our horizontal relationship will begin to diminish. You know, it's been that way from the very beginning. Some of you may know the names Cain and Abel. Cain is the first murderer in the Bible. He murders his brother Abel. Boy, talk about a horizontal faction, huh? But what's the source of the horizontal faction? Cain and Abel both brought gifts to God. They brought sacrifices to God. God was pleased with Abel's gift because the Bible says Abel brought the best of his herd. Cain bought the leftovers. Cain brought what was second rather than what was first. God was displeased with Cain's offering. He was pleased and accepted Abel's. And since Cain really can't do anything to get back at God, he gets back at the one connected or associated with God and he murders his brother. The point is, the horizontal faction is based on a vertical fracture. And that is exactly what we find here. Can we be a church where Jesus and his mission counts above all else? Can we be a church that doesn't divide over stupid stuff? 
Can we be a church that doesn't separate over preachers or worship leaders, over music or different kinds of instruments, different styles of clothing, different kinds of technology, or over political parties, pet ideas, hobby horses that we like to ride? You know, it doesn't matter if you're in the hip category or the hip replacement category. Our unity needs to be around the center. It needs to be around Jesus, following him. And if there are no fractures in that vertical relationship, we will then have the power and the energy to live in unity on the horizontal level. I always find it interesting that right in that context, Paul then talks about baptism. You know, baptism is a sign of identification. And so we often say here at Calvary Church, when you're baptized, you're identifying with Jesus. Well, some people in Corinth were using baptism to identify with an individual, and the individual was the one that baptized them. I identify with Paul. I identify with Apollos. I want to be baptized by so-and-so because my identification is with him. Isn't it ironic that one of the things that God gives us to show unity and to demonstrate and manifest that is something that we still divide over? Let me just mention a few ways that we separate over baptism. Some churches sprinkle with just a few drops of water. Other churches pour water. Others dunk the entire person into the water. Some dunk three times. Some churches dunk just once. Some churches dunk or sprinkle or pour only adults. Others baptize infants. In some contexts, you have to have godparents at the baptism. In other contexts, godparents are forbidden at the baptism. We divide over stupid stuff. We divide over issues that are on the periphery rather than issues that are in the center. So remember, horizontal factions come about because of a vertical fracture. And you know, maybe the saddest thing about all the talk about baptism is baptism above all is a sign that I die to myself. I'm dying to my will. I'm dying to selfishness. I'm dying to have to have things my way. But we use baptism as a means to separate and power up and want to have our own way. But the truth is, we can divide and separate over anything if we have a fracture in our relationship with Jesus vertically. So the real thrust of this passage is, maintain a vertical relationship with God through Jesus, and then we have the resource to be able to live in unity at the horizontal level. Well, what does Paul say about restoration then? How do we go about restoration? Well, restoration is not a product of being with people just like you. So it really doesn't matter if you're with people uh, and everybody there has the same political persuasion. Everybody there agrees the same thing about music. Everybody there likes the same uh, sports team. Soon you will figure out something else to divide um, over if you don't have the energy that comes from that vertical relationship. It's Jesus in the gospel that provides the message and the power to bring about um, unity horizontally. Now, we've uh, talked in the past uh, about a formula, uh, kind of a paradigm, a framework that will help us um, 
be able to make sense of this. Uh, we call it minding our A's, C's, and P's. You may, you may remember the words, absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Now, let me uh, define the terms, and I know some of you say, I know this, I know this. Others of you, it may be new. All I know is I need to be reminded of this regularly, and we're going to see that that's exactly what Paul does in this letter. Well, what are absolutes? Absolutes are things that are clearly and regularly taught in the Bible. Absolutes have been, believe, have been believed by Christians through the centuries and are believed across denominational lines. So absolutes would be things like the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, the incarnation, that Jesus became a human being, the fact that Jesus died for forgiveness, and the fact that by trusting in him, we can have our sins forgiven, and we can once again have access and acceptance with God. Absolutes clearly and regularly taught, believed by Christians through the centuries and across denominational lines. You know, if we uh, are going to choose some hills that we need to be willing to die on, they had better be absolute hills, not convictions or preference hills. Absolutes, hills that we should be willing to die on, clearly and regularly taught in the Bible. Well, the circle surrounding absolutes would be the conviction circle. Well, what are convictions? Uh, regardless of what you may think of convictions, let me define it as, as I'm using the term. Convictions are extrapolations or constructs that we build, but we use the data of Scripture to do it. So we take some verses, we take some themes, we take some ideas, we put them together, and we build a conviction superstructure. So let me uh, describe it to you like this. Uh, since some of you aren't going out to shop and you're not doing this and that, maybe you get Peapod or some other food service to deliver groceries for you. Well, just suppose the same set of groceries, a giant delivery of groceries, comes to every one of our homes. We have the same stuff. We have meat, we have chicken, we have fish, we have vegetables, we have pasta, we have rice, we have cake, we have pie, we have everything you can imagine. Lots of desserts, lots of fruit. We've got it all. In fact, we've got a month's supply of food. Everything you're going to need to eat for a month that gets delivered to every one of our homes. Question, what are you going to make for dinner tonight? Well, maybe you're going to take some ground meat out and you're going to make cheeseburgers on the grill. Or maybe you're going to take chicken and you're going to roast chicken. Or maybe you're going to have steak. Or maybe you're going to say, forget all of that. I'm going to have a piece of fish. And I don't want pasta. I want rice. Or I don't want rice or pasta. I'm going to have potatoes. I don't eat vegetables at all. What, the point is, my guess is that we would have as many different dinners that night with as many different desserts as we have homes that it was delivered to. The same delivery came to each of us, but we constructed different meals from it. That's kind of how convictions work. The Bible gets delivered to us, but then because of our community connection, because of people we know, because of our own personalities, because of our own priorities, we take the material and we construct our own convictions from it. Now, the Bible would say, once you develop those convictions, you need to live according to them, but be in dialogue with Christians that have different convictions because we need to change our convictions and we'll change our convictions as we go through life. So what are some convictions that Christians may hold? Well, how about uh, women can and 
or can't do this in a church? Um, what kind of instrument should be played in this? How much water do you need for baptism? Who can be baptized? After a hot summer day, what can you have to drink at the end of it? They would all be based on convictions. And the idea is that we take some data from the scripture and it becomes right before our eyes. It becomes a priority. But there are other bits of data, just like a lot of food items in that peapod order that don't get served for dinner that night. There's a lot of other biblical data that doesn't come into play when we build our convictions. Well, we've got one more circle to go, and that would be the preference circle. Now, by the time we get to preferences, we've pretty much left the Bible behind, and now we're dealing with appetite. Now we're dealing with things that I like or things that you like. So now we're dealing with clothing that we wear. Now we're dealing with um, music that we want to hear in this context or that. Preferences, what color the carpet should be. It's interesting to me that in our world today, the church world today, we've got a new preference, or maybe it's even a conviction. It doesn't matter which circle they fit in, provided that it's not in the absolute circle. It goes like this. When should we gather together again in the same room to worship? And there are some that say, we should gather next week. The models were wrong. We need to get back together. The Bible says, don't forsake your gathering together. Other people say, we can't gather together until it's safe. We need to love our neighbors. You know, the Bible's not absolutely clear on how soon we should gather. In fact, Paul used the technology of his day, letter writing, to communicate with people that he was absent from, and we're using the technology of our day to communicate and stay connected in community. Now look, I'm not saying that to reprimand anybody. I'm saying that because our unity, our community, our harmony is a lot more significant than having our preference package met or having everything we do fit every conviction that I hold. Now I said to you a few minutes ago that in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually talks about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. So in ending this message, let me show you one place where Paul speaks to each of those issues. First of all, Paul speaks to an absolute. He speaks to an absolute in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, and he says this, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Christ Jesus. One foundation of first importance, Jesus Christ. Jesus needs to be in the absolute center of each of our lives and in the center of Calvary Church's life. That's an absolute. That's a hill we need to die on. The message and the mission of Jesus. Well, Paul then in chapter 8 talks a little bit about convictions. I'm not going to read the verses. You can go back and check them out. But the issue was meat sacrifice to idols. And maybe a way for you to think about convictions would be this. Some Christians do and some Christians don't. And so in the Corinthian context, 
Some Corinthian Christians would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and some Corinthians would not eat meat that would sacrifice to idols. And in this context, Paul says, your unity is more important than your convictions. If you think it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And if you think it's okay, then you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Eating of the meat sacrificed to idols isn't the issue. The issue is your attitude toward God and your unity and harmony, the community of the Corinthian church. So when it comes to convictions, Jesus, the absolute, needs to take precedent over even our convictions. Well, how about preferences? Well, that's kind of where we started. Back in chapter one, uh, they have division and it's over preference, right? Some from Chloe's house report that there's lots of division. Some in the church are saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Jesus. They're dividing over preference. And Paul says, don't divide over preferences. Have harmony even in areas of conviction, but make sure there's unity when it comes to the absolutes. You know, the main absolute, Paul gets to again and again and again through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But maybe the clearest place that Paul hammers at home is in 1st Corinthians 15. And here's what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12. And he goes on, he says, he appeared to 500. And last of all, he appeared to me. Notice when Paul talks about absolutes, the absolutes always center in Jesus. And so the gospel is about Jesus, Jesus being born, Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus rising from the dead, and right now Jesus ruling in the church and one day returning to deliver all that God promised from the beginning. Absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Our way, our framework of saying the same thing that Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians all the way through both of the letters. Make sure Jesus is in the center You can have different convictions, dialogue about them. You can have different preferences. Sacrifice your preference so someone else can have their preferences met. Now, I know some of you watching may not have Jesus in the absolute circle of your life. I would encourage you, check out the evidence. Read through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. Check other places in the Bible. Call the church. Talk to someone. See if Jesus really is who the Bible said he is and see if he actually did what he said he did. I encourage you, find out if Jesus belongs in the center and put him there. I would encourage all of us to make sure that our convictions and our preferences come secondarily to the absolutes of Jesus in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as we read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, we kind of smile because uh, the problems that Paul experienced then are the same problems that we experience today. There's debate and there's disagreement. There's disunity, there's disharmony. There's lots of factions. But his assessment is absolutely right. Horizontal factions come because of a vertical fracture. And so I pray, Lord, that you would encourage 
each one of us to make sure that we understand something about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And even more important than that, to make sure that Jesus is the center, that the gospel, the mission of Jesus, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the center of our lives. And may we be willing to be in dialogue and community with people that have different convictions and help us to sacrifice our preferences to meet the preferences of others. Thanks for the vertical reconciliation through the gospel that gives us the power and the energy to live in harmony and community horizontally. We pray in the name of Jesus who makes that possible.